Hello, my name's David Runciman, and this is Talking Politics. This week, an extra episode, Helen and I are going to try and make sense of where we are with Brexit. Talking Politics is brought to you in partnership with the London Review of Books. As politics speeds up, slow down with a subscription to the LRB, where Brexit and Trump are only part of a picture that includes, well, everything else. Read relevant pieces and subscribe at a special rate at lrb.co.uk forward slash talking. So we're now a few days on from the really interesting series of votes in the House of Commons as various amendments fell one by one until the Brady Amendment passed. The next day on Wednesday, I travelled to Ireland in a day, there and back, to Dublin. On the way there, this was the morning after the night before, I read the, not not the British papers, I think we have to call them the English papers, that were celebrating Theresa's triumph. And on the way back, I read the Irish newspapers from the same day that were bemoaning Theresa's betrayal. And the Irish Times, one of their columnists, I thought made the perfectly reasonable point that the reason we need a backstop is precisely because the British government has decided that they can renegotiate the backstop, because the whole point of it is to provide security. That is, people's confidence in the future that the border will not become a hard border. And put in those terms, it does make it look really hard for Theresa May to persuade Brussels, which means at some level persuading the Irish government, that this question can be reopened because... There is a point to the backstop from the Irish point of view. They cannot be confident that British politics will not really mess them around unless they have that security. But it just, it partly sounds paradoxical, kind of, we need the backstop because the British government is saying we don't need the backstop. But it's also true. But the other side of the paradox, though, is that if the backstop, which is at the moment the primary impediment to... Britain leaving the European Union with a withdrawal agreement and the alternative is Britain leaving with no deal, then the nature of the rules of the European Union ensure there has to be something that might be described as a hard border through the island of Ireland. So the worst case scenario is actually at the moment being hastened along or at least potentially being hastened along by the backstop that's supposed to prevent the worst case Scenario. We could tie ourselves up in knots here. It's the dilemma here, basically. Let's try and see this from the Irish point of view. You've got two pretty terrible options. But no deal gives you hard border plus very immediate economic chaos. And withdrawal agreement with a, some modification of the backstop arrangement risks hard border, but it does at least forestall the immediate economic chaos. Because actually, put in those terms, I'm now persuaded the other way that there is a good case for reopening this. I think that this gets to the heart of the political calculation that this Irish government made in pursuing the original backstop, which was for Northern Ireland and wasn't going to include the United Kingdom, made. And that was that no British government could contemplate in any shape or form leaving without a deal. So either the backstop went through as part of the withdrawal agreement or a backstop went through as part of the withdrawal agreement, or Brexit wouldn't happen. 
or some different government negotiated some different deal, a, a customs union deal or whatever? Well, I don't think that was really a possibility because the customs union is about the future relationship and the future relationship was never going to be negotiated during the period we were negotiating the withdrawal. So it was this or no exit? Or no exit. Not, and, not no deal. Yeah, and so I think that the Irish calculation has always been that no deal would be so intolerable for Britain that there would be no possibility of that happening. So there isn't actually... A risk of getting into that scenario. So I think from if you're sitting in in Dublin at the moment, you might be more nervous than you had been, simply because there is some possibility. Now I think it's it's not a very high possibility that Britain is going to leave without uh, a deal. But at the same time, I think that what we can see from this week's developments, the votes on the amendments, is is that. There is no stomach in Parliament for trying to stop Brexit, or there's insufficient stomach in Parliament for trying to stop Brexit. So in that sense, the risk of no deal has actually gone up this week. So let's come on to the parliamentary arithmetic in a second. Just one more question about Ireland, but also the wider European Union negotiating strategy over the next perilous few days and weeks. There is, and people have started to say it, a kind of motif that's emerging, particularly among the Brexiteers, that this is how the EU always negotiates, takes everything to the wire, don't believe them when they say this can't be reopened, look at what happened with the Greeks right up to the 11th hour and the 59th minute, it looked like it wouldn't work and then a compromise was found. But to me this looks different because essentially... You know, the key relationship here is between the Irish government and the European Union. It's the Irish position that's being defended. And as we get closer to the wire, are the other member states really going to abandon Ireland? Isn't the thing that the European Union does as it gets closer to the wire that it thinks its priority is to hold together, which is why maybe it backs down in the face of some aspects of the Greek crisis? Won't it hold together as it gets nearer the wire? It's not going to cut Ireland loose. Well, I think that the first of your points goes back to the Greek crisis itself and the ways in which it's been interpreted, which I think generally been the wrong ways in which it's been interpreted, because that isn't a moment actually of EU unity holding, except in a very, very perverse way, because what was going on in those negotiations over the third bailout was that the finance ministers of the Eurozone states were trying to expel Greece from the Eurozone. And the the midnight hour deal, so to speak, was the Greek government and the Greek Prime Minister Cyprus swallowing so much humiliation to stop that attempt at expulsion. So it was that rather than to expel Greece would have actually fractured European unity? I think that Merkel was in an extremely difficult position in that it wasn't clear that she was sufficiently committed to the position that her finance minister, Schauble, had been pushing so she gave him sufficient green light to go ahead with the attempted expulsion and then she gave the tiniest little suite if you like to Cyprus to try to say oh you could just accept this and swallow everything else you can stay in so I think it's not entirely clear even in in retrospect how committed Merkel was to pushing Greece out of the Eurozone. You could read it that she never quite wanted to do that. But I think what it means is is that the point of view of making comparison with, with Brexit is, is that the issue about European unity doesn't really hold. Now, if you then turn to where we are now with Brexit from the point of view of other EU governments and the Irish question, 
clearly there is something more at stake for them than just supporting the Irish government and that is the credibility of the European Union and the negotiating position that it took and the fact that it's remained as committed for as long as it has to the Irish position. All that would lead one to think that that is going to stick and that the EU 26 are not going to abandon Ireland over the backstop. On the other hand, if you're sitting in Berlin and you're looking at the latest economic data out of Germany and you're thinking, okay, on top of these difficulties, we're going to add in a no-deal Brexit and then we're going to have to persuade our voters that this was all worth it. I think trying to persuade German voters or indeed anybody else's voters that all this is necessary in order to protect Ireland about the border with the United Kingdom is not the easiest, shall we say, political seller. At the very least, it must create some kind of doubt how, about what the political calculus now is. How close to the wire do we have to get for that to kick in? Is it going to kick in before February no, the I think 13th, this, this 14th? Is, this is the, the, the tactical, massive tactical problem that Theresa May's got, is that 14th of February is way too soon. Because if the EU is going to move even in ways that get dressed up as being symbolic, but perhaps underneath have more substance to them, they're not going to do it by the 14th of February. So that then moves the question onto the calculus in the House of Commons, because there's one group of people who may hold together, that's the EU27, there's another group of people who may not hold together, that's the Conservative Party. So you said there's no appetite in the Commons for not doing Brexit. Is there an appetite, though, still to delay it? Because the fact that the Cooper Amendment went down and the Brady Amendment went through happened on a particular day under particular circumstances. There are a whole series of choices that people face there. But come back in two weeks' time, you don't get the movement from the Europeans. Tory unity starts to fracture. Isn't there then a chance that the an equivalent of the Cooper Amendment, an extension to Article 50, does get through? I'm not saying that there's... No chance, but I, I think that what happened this week does reveal that there is a real difficulty in mobilising sufficient Labour votes to try to bring about an extension of Article 50 for something that would have to be a second referendum in one form or another. So I should say the other amendment that passed was the symbolic yeah. rejection of no deal. But you think that the symbolism is easy, actually doing it for too many Labour members is hard. You don't think that in two weeks' time the symbolic vote becomes an actual I think that I think the, the, the way that I interpret what happened this week is, is that Parliament clearly, there was a majority in Parliament, probably a larger majority than there was on the Spellman Amendment, absolutely do not want in any circumstances whatsoever, no deal. I think what this week made clearer is, is that the majority in Parliament do not either really want to delay Brexit unless it was for a very specified purpose of getting legislation done. And I suspect that one of the reasons why that might be the case is if you look at the polling, I think it was Sky that did, is is that something like 60% of the electorate regard any argument about extending Article 50 as really an argument for stopping Brexit. And you can see why they might think, think that. that. So if we leave aside the tactical problem, and it's a massive tactical problem about the February the 14th date in relation to the, the European Union, we have seen, I think, events move that push the choice between a version of this withdrawal agreement and a version of this polit political declaration 
versus no deal, which is what Theresa May had been trying to move things towards. As I say, the impediment from her point of view, or the difficulty from her point of view, is is that the next time that these votes have got to come up, it's really too soon to have got anything at all, even, I think, symbolic changes to the two things at issue. Because I have to say, it feels to me like I agree that were this to move to that choice, she would have a pretty good chance of finally getting a parliamentary majority for her deal. But that, for the reasons you say, there won't be enough movement on the European side. So it hasn't become a two-way choice. There will still be three options on the table. So there will be significant numbers of Conservative MPs who will not back her deal because she's not got the concessions or movement or even enough creative ambiguity that they would require, which means that they won't back it, which will give fresh impetus to the people who then think they can peel off Romanish Conservative members of Parliament to support some version of the Cooper Amendment because no deal looms larger and larger as a possible threat. I don't see that we've yet got three into two. If we have got three into two, I think Theresa May wins. If we're still three, I think she's got a really big problem. But what's the third? I mean, is it extending Article 50 for a referendum? Is extending Article 50 for well, a general election? It's, in order for the EU to agree to the extension of Article 50, other than for tidying up some legislation, it's got to be for some clear purpose that is going to, from the EU's point of view, yield something. And if it were a general election, I just don't see what that yields from the EU's point of view. I think it just, even if you end up with a minority Labour government, it still leaves you with the issue of how do you negotiate with a new government that, on its own admission, doesn't want the backstop. So a general election could do anything. I mean, I think the political logic points to a general election. If genuinely Parliament cannot get three down into two, it seems to me almost all you can do then is have a new Parliament. I agree it's hard to see why the EU would be thrilled at the thought of delaying for a few months in order to face a very uncertain future. Of course, it could result in a majority Conservative But at that point, you can just say, is, is the EU can just say no to that, and then that becomes a no deal. And that refocuses people's minds on passing the withdrawal agreement. So we could go round on this forever. I find it hard to believe in the same way that when Theresa May, we've got the fixed-term Parliament Act, but when Theresa May comes along in 2017 and says, I want an election, no one's going to dare stop her. I cannot see the EU refusing an extension if the British government says it's to allow us to have a general election. That would actually, it seems to me, look terrible from a kind of democratic legitimacy point of view. So I think she could call their bluff on this, but of course it would be a strange bluff calling because she could also, by doing that, get herself turfed out I don't think that the EU's ever been really greatly concerned about democratic legitimacy in this whole process. I think it's concerned about the look of democratic legitimacy. Okay, we're not going to go around in circles on this. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Talking Politics is brought to you in partnership with the London Review of Books. This week, the week that's just gone, looked like a week, unusually for recent months, where the Conservative Party was coming together and the Labour Party around this issue was looking more fractured. Is that the real picture? Is it really the case that when it comes to the crunch, 
the Tory party's traditional virtue of we'll hang together or we'll hang separately, we'll hold the fort? I think that... That, that, that was a very mixed metaphor. <laughs> I think that, um, you know, the, the relative conservative um, unity, and let's not go overboard on how far it went, because you still did have, I think, around 20 Conservative MPs who voted for the Cooper Amendment, did come from some concerted effort within the Conservative Party to try to narrow the scope of the disagreement. So if you just take the ERG, they've gone from having a 1,001 problems from the withdrawal agreement to having problems that are about the backstop and actually really about one part of the backstop, which is the absence of any kind of exit mechanism in any form whatsoever from the backstop. So that's a, a reduction of the differences between those in the Conservative Party who want the present withdrawal agreement to pass and those who have been bitterly opposed on it and trying to unite round let's try and deal with this exit mechanism now whether that can fly in Brussels is a whole other matter but at least within the Conservative Party they've got some more common ground than there was leaving the 20 who voted around 20 I think who voted for the Cooper Amendment aside I think what you saw we saw this week in the Labour Party was many more different positions coming out and I think that you know you've got the people who basically supported the government you've got Corbyn in the front bench who supported formally enthusiastically the Cooper Amendment with a three-line whip but in practice rather tepidly that and actually do want Brexit to go through but they want the Conservative Party to take responsibility for Brexit. Then you've got the Yvette Cooper people who want Article 50 extended though it's not entirely clear what they think will then be achieved by that and then you've got the second referendum people that's a pretty you know and you got a few citizens assembly people we shouldn't leave them out yeah sorry Uh, uh, and you haven't got anybody who's trying to discipline those groups and I I think in some ways the most revealing thing that happened this week was the exposure of how weak the second referendum position is I mean the second referendum faction in parliament wasn't even confident enough to put its own amendment forward it then had everybody who's supporting the second referendum back Cooper's amendment and then when that didn't get through you had some of the leading spokespersons for that not least Chaka Imuna who got extraordinarily angry live on television I mean his guard completely went down and you get the sense of a man who thought well things have really changed in a negative way for the position that I've been pushing for the last however many um, months that it is. I agree absolutely the second referendum was the big loser from this week and so to go back to that question if a version of the Cooper Amendment is going to go through an extension of Article 50 for what? Which is another of the reasons why I think, I mean, I still have to say, I think a general election is probably not going to happen because it would take a huge act of courage. But the logic points towards a general election. The other tiny bit of political logic is that those divisions you describe would make an election potentially quite hard for the Labour Party to fight. I mean, the Tory party have got huge problems too. Apparently their internal polling is really bad. They're totally scarred by last time. They can't go into it with Theresa May at this stage. They can't get rid of her. So you know, everything would be, you know, be a huge roll of the dice. But some of the options are narrowing. I agree, a second referendum is much less likely than it seemed a week ago. I should say, I, don't ever th- I didn't ever think it was likely because I thought, thought that it was difficult to see how a referendum bill could get through the... House of Commons. I think that what has changed is not actually the chances of it happening, it's the perception of the chances of it happening amongst those who are pushing it. So let's 
finish with the, the fundamental question in a way, which is the squaring of the circle between what would allow the ERG and others who back the Brady Amendment to continue to back the government and what the European Union could do without being seen to basically abandon the Irish government. It's really hard to see how you can bring those two positions together. There there are forms of words that might give something to both sides, but particularly given the ERG are unlikely to sign up to many nice nebulous (laughs) phrases. Is there anything tangible that closes that gap that you can see at this point before, I mean, never mind before February the 14th, before March the 29th? In terms of specifics and and technicalities, no. And partly that's because I simply actually don't understand it enough to... I mean, that's one of the other things, right? (laughs) There is presumably a very technical version of this outcome which isn't going to work because people who understand the technicalities are very few. I think that the the only political space that you're talking about is is something where all parties, you know, from um, the Irish government to those people in the House of Commons who would then vote for a withdrawal agreement to the British government to the EU could be near 100% confident that the backstop in practice would not materialise. So maybe that is is by doing more work in advance about what some alternative to it may be, which is, in, in one sense, the whole possibility of discussing that has been shut down by the way in which the processes of negotiation have worked. It's because once you said, once the EU, I should say, said that the issue of the Irish border had to be part of the withdrawal stage of the negotiations and not part of the future relationship, then you've got a structural difficulty that we're now run into so if in some sense we could get ahead of ourselves into the alternatives if and when Britain has left the European Union such that the backstop could sort of fade away I don't mean fade away in the sense of not being in the withdrawal agreement but sufficient trust that we will not get to that place but that sounds like one of those versions of it which would work if we didn't have to start from here because the mistake, in the same way that people yeah. said the, the British government's mistake was to trigger Article 50 too soon, it is possible that we are trapped because the European Union's mistake was to put into the withdrawal agreement the thing that actually now needs to be negotiated away. It is quite possible that we're trapped for that. And then we will have to have or, probably a general And then election. it's trapped. I'm still less convinced by that bit, but we're still trapped, I think, by the nature of Article 50 of this cut-off date in the sense that the treaty itself, the Lisbon Treaty itself, says that these negotiations go on for two years and then either withdrawal happens with a withdrawal agreement or withdrawal happens um, without. So one last thing. I think both of us feel this is unlikely to be resolved on the 14th, right? You don't, no, I, don't, no, no, no I don't think so. No, don't. Um, so then that takes us to within less than six weeks of the end point and it is a test of nerve partly it's a cliche now but it is a test of nerve it's not really who blinks first but it's kind of within these options that question of when does when do we get down to two choices and we're not there yet how close can we go because again the greek things it was actually overnight the night before so this one can't run through march well the thing is i say i don't think the greek parallel works again because you know there was no treaty date 
that was an issue in terms of now Greece had financial needs, but they could be covered by you know like some emergency arrangement through the ECB. I mean, the summit had a closing point, I suppose, but it hadn't got a legal date by which something was entrenched in Greek law by which this had to happen. I think it, it can go all the way to you know literal midnight. I mean with the caveat that you would still then need Article 50 extension in order to deal with the legislation that would then need to be passed. I don't think Parliament, this Parliament, could stomach that. I don't think this Parliament could let it go all the way till midnight. It would it would vote for an extension of say, quite a few weeks it, it before that. It can't do that. Without, the difficulty then is, is that you still got to... You can vote for the extension, but the EU have got to agree with yeah, it. Sure. And the EU have got to agree to it for a reason. Oh, so you think we might vote for an extension and the EU delays? But what? Oh, really? A, <laughs> this is the point where we're both about to run out of. There's, there's a legal process in, in motion here. British Parliament cannot decide by itself to extend Article 15. That is a, an absolute constraint on the situation in which we are now in. Maybe we can agree in some way the ball is now in the EU's court. I mean, it's more has to be decided and worked through and weighed up on that side than on our side at this point. In one sense, yes. I mean, but I think that you know that is a function of the way in which Article Fifty works, rather than because in substantive terms necessarily the ball's been put back to the European Union. I mean, each side has got to make a decision about whether it can swallow, whether it can take no deal or not. Now, we're pretty confident that the British Parliament will find some way or other in order to stop that happening. Having said that, I think we've also seen, as I say this week, that the British Parliament or the majority of the British Parliament is extraordinarily nervous about the idea of avoiding no deal simply by cancelling Brexit. We will, of course, come back to this, but we're not just going to talk about Brexit next week. We're talking to John Lanchester about climate. We'll be talking about surveillance capitalism. We're going to try and move in and out of this story. I think, as you can probably tell, we are finding it hard, but we're going to keep going as long as it keeps going. My name is David Runciman and we've been Talking Politics. We will, of course, come back to this, but we're going to try and move in and out of Brexit. We are talking to John Lanchester in our regular slot next week. We're going to have a conversation with Shoshana Zuboff about surveillance capitalism and Facebook. It's not all about Brexit. But we need to know what's going to happen. No, that's a bad way. <laughs> no, no, no. This town's too needy, that does. <laughs> it's so sad. Yeah. It's yeah. just like you want to crawl up under a t- yeah. table. Um, yeah. Yeah, okay. I'll, I'll, let me do that again. Oh, yeah, yeah. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello? 
Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Want truly hydrated skin? Medocia's Body Care Breakthrough Hyaluronic Body Serum. It's clinically proven to increase hydration by 161%. It's lightweight, fast absorbing, and delivers 24 hours of hydration for silky smooth skin without any sticky afterfeel. Treat your skin to clean vegan skincare from Osea. Get 10% off your first order with code SUMMER at OseaMalibu.com. That's O-S-E-A Malibu.com code SUMMER.